0: It's a bit ridiculous to say things are crazy in cybersecurity right now. We are still living in the wake of solar winds and Accelion. The Fed chair is talking about cyber risk as a critical economic concern. But things are also kind of crazy within the industry itself. There is a much ballyhooed skills shortage, or is there? There is the eternal conundrum of trying to elevate security as a business growth driver. So I wanted to talk to somebody who thinks about these things, and I reached out to Naomi Buckwalter, a 20-year cybersecurity veteran who's built up a massive community on LinkedIn, tackling big and sometimes uncomfortable topics. These are the result, she says, of 20 years of pent-up rage. All right. Welcome, Naomi Buckwalter. Hey. Hi. Hey. So you have got some things to say. (laughs) <laughs> we are uh, we're going to dig into a lot of topics, um, but I kind of want to start with the medium before the message. So um, you first caught our eye on LinkedIn, and and I think you're known now for some rather insightful LinkedIn posts. Sometimes they're short, and sometimes they're a little bit on the longer side. But they either way, they kind of dig in to a lot of tricky issues in cybersecurity, the industry um representation its its role in business either way it's very clear from the engagement that you're sparking conversation and people are listening so starting with that medium can you tell us a little bit how you decided on linkedin was how did you come to that as as your as your method
1: yeah um so linkedin is just a really safe space i think for social media engagement and i've always felt a more affinity with the cybersecurity community on LinkedIn because of the fact that we are a little kinder to each other. So I'm happy to share kind of these thoughts that I've had. Really, I call them 20 years of pent-up rage. <laughs> this is what I've been saying. <laughs> so I, I certainly have a lot of thoughts. And um, I will say it's it's only been recent, uh, George, because when the pandemic started hitting, I was just a lot more bored, I would say. And so I started just writing. I wrote for myself. I didn't really care for an audience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until recently where I realized like a lot of people care about these same issues. And it might I might as well use the engagement to try and start some of these conversations. And I'm very grateful that a lot of people have been commenting and, and sharing. And I really enjoy that conversation. Um, and it's something that's important to me. It's that like we need to build up each other and have this community. And we have to play as a team in order to defeat cybercrime.
0: Yeah. And then, so in terms of that that methodology, I'm glad you're being honest about, you know, trapped inside in the pandemic, I got all these things to say and it comes out. Um, are you deciding on the topics ahead of time? You say it's 20 years of pent up rage. So I assume that a lot of stuff's been stewing around for a little bit. Mm-hmm.
1: That is true. Um, but honestly, no, I only I only spend about 20 minutes a day on LinkedIn just writing. And then uh, for the rest of the day, I'm either working or I'm thinking about kind of things that I think are Patterns that I see and mm-hmm. why is it a certain way. So it, it's always simmering in the back of my mind. But you know, I don't really have any planned posts or anything like that. It's just really what I feel like writing that day. I do write for myself. It's cathartic. It's kind of my way of releasing energy. And uh, I, I'd rather that than taking it out on some poor innocent person on the street. So yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, LinkedIn. I'm so sorry if I if I'm always in your feeds, but that's what's happening.
0: Hey, yeah. I mean. You're not afraid to get into it, and um, even with I think so-called contentious topics. I say so-called because I, you know, being contentious is a matter of perception. Um, but I remember when we first started talking that you described yourself as a no BS kind of person. Um, could you speak to that a little bit? Was that uh, is that a natural outgrowth of like a, a particular role model, your parents, a mentor? Like, I'm just interested in how you how you come to, to that way of yeah, communicating
1: a very interesting progression there. I used to be one of those people who were very sh- was very shy. I used to always want to be liked, but it wasn't until maybe in my mid thirties where I realized like, I don't like everyone. Why should everyone like me? And once <laughs> I came to that realization and it did take me a couple, a few decades, right? But um, I just started not caring if people didn't like me. And I, that really opened up an entire world of possibilities where I can still be kind and that's always my default, but I also don't care if I say something and someone takes it in a way that I didn't intend like I'm okay with not being liked and so that took me quite a while to get there Mm -hmm. and it's not something that a mentor taught me or anything it really is just life and uh, I feel like we eventually all kind of get there and so you see those jaded individuals (laughs) kind of like that (laughs) but I'm still trying to bring um, a positive light and energy to everything and all the interactions I have because I can see the opposite of that destroying the community that I'm trying to build and I'm trying to have every to understand we're all humans we all have emotions and feelings and it's better if we build each other up and tear each other down it's so easy to be negative it's much more hard to be kind in situations where it's just not, you know not always needed but it when you take step back from your keyboard you realize everyone's a human everyone mm-hmm. has the same hopes and dreams and fears and um, we need to start treating each other as such humans
0: yeah and I I appreciate that in your posts I can see and sense kind of the cutting critique but it's not done like just full of snark right I, i get that sense i'm also sensitive to the fact that uh women are generally held to that nice quote unquote standard unfairly um so i also think that that's that's refreshing
1: Oh, that's an interesting observation. I would say, yeah, we were we are generally raised to be more socially conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a reason why women are better at emotional intelligence. It's because we get that feedback very early on. Like, oh, you're not a nice person. You're not. You're not going to be included in this group. <laughs> so you're ostracized at a very early age, and so we learn these habits and these coping mechanisms where we need to be kind and we need to put on that Minnesota nice, right? <laughs> um, and men generally don't really need to have that. They have the alpha male within their group. You can be a little bit more of a, a leader in terms of like just saying your mind and doing whatever you want. People will follow you. Yes, there, there are very gender specific things there. But, um, as we all kind of mature in our, in our professional life and in our private lives, we start to realize that there is a healthy balance there. You can be nice, but assertive. You don't need to always be the bully or just to be the leader. Right. And so I I do agree with you. Women do have a higher standard, but that's also because we are uh, raised that way, at least in our culture.
0: Yeah. And I, yeah. And, you know, you could take similar modes of behavior and when a man does it it's assertive and confident and when a woman does it it's bossy or whatever that's annoying however i do want to double click on the the eq aspect so we had also talked initially about how that eq is actually is an asset in terms of business leadership could you touch on that a little
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Research has shown that women are have higher levels of emotional intelligence for many different reasons. It could be just our wiring, could be the way we're raised, mm-hmm. our social awareness, but that always translates into better leadership skills. There's a lot of human skills that are required to be a good leader. There's a lot of hard technical skills that women are good at too, but their research has shown that the human skills, also known as soft skills, uh, women tend to gravitate towards those a little easier. Now I'm saying this is a very generic statement. There are Mm -hmm. definitely men who do this very well, and there are definitely women who don't do this well. But in general, research has shown women do have higher levels of emotional intelligence, and that does translate into being better leaders. And when I say that, the businesses that they lead end up being more uh, successful. So in Mm -hmm. terms of revenue and growth, that's what you'll see. Women-led countries, women-led companies will always be more, a little bit more successful.
0: Yeah. I, I can't think of a clearer, more timely example than the uh, the studies of the countries run by women in their response to the pandemic. <laughs> so yeah. we'll, leave that, we'll leave that to the public health experts. Um, I did want to, that was a great segue into looking at the hard and the soft skills or the technical and the human. So you write a lot about um, the security industry, and I kind of want to take it in in reverse. So I'm going to start at the the top um, with the C level and the director level positions. So, what are some of the skills that are needed to make that leap from you know technical cyber expertise into you know business leader, mitigating risk, but being able to report to a board or reporting to um, a CEO? What is It seems that there's like a disjuncture there, right, between a fascination with hard cyber versus these softer business skills.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. They're completely different skills. The technical skills are really just one track of an engineer and an entire separate track for the CISO or for that leadership. You need more of the softer relationship side, the human skills. And it's not something that's very easily taught for an engineer because as an engineer, you have very black and white things that you have to do. You either do this or you do that, or you don't do this or you don't do that. It's very easy to do, I would say. There's not a lot of challenge in the technical realm. Where the real challenges lay is when you have to start balancing the needs of the business with what security needs to be at so you're not getting too much risk for the business. So uh, people who are looking to break into the leadership roles, really work on your self-awareness, work on your human skills, your ability to influence and persuade. These are all very important things that you'll need when you come in front of a business leader and now you have to make the case for why you have to do a certain thing for security. You have to win their hearts and minds for doing the right thing in security. And you can only do that if you have great human skills.
0: Yeah, it brings to mind something my dad always taught me, which is you spend a lot of your education sort of knuckled down studying. And his opinion was that you should have to present as much as possible because once you get into the job market, all you're doing is presenting ideas and basically selling ideas or trying to get buy-in. But a lot of people feel uncomfortable with that initially, that public speaking aspect. But you got to get in front of people all the time and just convince them, I need budget for this, I need budget for that. Um, This also, I recently heard an interview with um, the dean of the School of Public Health at Harvard, and she was talking about, as it relates to the pandemic, that public health officials need to take a stronger stance and with governors, with whatever, in terms of making sure that public health is no longer seen as a cost center, but it's actually a, a strategic underpinning of growth. This strikes me as a pretty good analogy for security, right? Because we always hear that revenue is going to beat security every time. Um, curious to get your thoughts on, on that, on that. How do we sort of begin to negotiate that perception of cybersecurity as, as a growth driver rather than... This box, I got a tick, or this line item, I got a, I got a bill to.
1: Yeah, this is a classic question. You know, how can we make cybersecurity less of a cost center and more of a business enabler to have its own ROI? And it's a classic problem, but it is possible. So, what cybersecurity professionals can do is try to sell cybersecurity first within their own company and really act as that. A salesperson and just say, hey, the cybersecurity can give us all these great things and start to sell it beyond the internal. So start selling it to the customers, start selling mm. it to partners and to other businesses and show other people externally how well you do security and how much money it can actually generate if you win the trust of the customers and win the trust of your partners. It really comes down to trust. So I'm only giving my money to a company that I know creates great products, have great services. And honestly, for a security person, I would love to see my data be secure also. But in general, a consumer is always going to want to have the best products for the least amount of money. And if you can win trust through great products and great services, you can do the same with providing great security products, great security services on top of what the consumer is already purchasing. So for example, I'm not going to buy something that I know is going to be insecure. I want everything that I buy, like I'm going to download an app. I want to make sure that this isn't taking too much information Mm -hmm. from my device, or it's not getting the camera on or listening to my audio and things like that. I want to ensure that customers and partners and businesses know that I am putting security first and making it a priority for my business. That way I can sell it and win trust and trust will always, always turn into revenue.
0: Back to my discussion with Naomi Buckwalter in a moment. If you like this episode of First Watch and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You can catch up on past episodes like our interview with Daryl Kelly, founder and CEO of the Black Cybersecurity Association. And you'll get new ones straight to your feed. Now, back to my conversation with Naomi Buckwalter. So very recently you took on uh, the sense of elitism in cybersecurity. kind of want to interrogate that a little bit because it's something that has, uh, I think, afflicted um, the industry for quite some time in terms of judging qualifications, how many certifications do you have after your name on your LinkedIn profile, (laughs) stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh. This one is a tough one. So, um, you know, it really comes down to how we perceive each other and how we perceive ourselves. So we're always the superhero in -hmm. our own story. We're always going to be the best one. Like we're never the bad person. Um, take any bad antagonist throughout history, they always think that they're doing the right thing. They have justifications. They have cognitive dissonance, uh, whatever it is. For sure. Uh, So they have an understanding of that they're doing the right thing because they are good people. They have morals, they're smart, and they're not gonna be doing bad things because they're good people, right? Cognitive dissonance. So what we're seeing in the cybersecurity community is kind of the same thing, where the people who are now judging think that they could never be those judges. they can never do the bad thing and be elitist because they are good people. Oh, you know, like we are mm-hmm. smart. We, we would never do that. We're kind. But, um, you know, objectively, though, we are we are seeing this level and this increasing um, ability or I guess I, I would say this downside to this where people are trying to control one another and say, hey, I am I know more than you, so I'm going to try to inflict my opinion on you a little bit more strongly than I normally would in any other topic. And it's just because they've become this superhero within their own story and they've convinced themselves um, that they are right. And so the elitism comes from that. You see new people trying to break in, and they see other people spouting off their credentials and how much mm-hmm. they know, and all the CVEs and all the boxes they've popped. And they are, and all these new people are, are now filled with imposter syndrome. They're filled with this idea of I'm not good enough. And a lot of people trying to break in are terrified of being called out of not knowing enough because they see all these people bragging about stuff. Whereas everyone should know. Everyone makes mistakes. We're all human. I make mistakes. I'm definitely making mistakes all the time. I try not to repeat the mistakes. That's really where you have that self-awareness of like, mm-hmm. you're not perfect. Nobody is. Let's all remember that. And when we are elitist, we're we're hurting ourselves. So for anyone listening, uh, you probably think you're not elitist, but just take an objective look at what you're posting, what kind of reactions you're getting um, from the community. And if you're not getting a lot of the, the networking opportunities with other people, maybe that could be one of the reasons why. Like you are objectively elitist.
0: <laughs> that's, yeah, that's an interesting point. So we recently talked... Um, with Mary Galloway, you know, and she was saying, uh, you know, a 14-week certification class can change the financial trajectory of somebody who's, you know, trying to change a career path or or what have you. And that does, I've also seen in those entry-level positions a lot of anxiety about, you know, I've taken this class and I've taken that class. Do I need to get a degree in this and that. And, you know, even Daryl Kelly, um, the president and founder of the Black Cybersecurity Association, he relayed the story of how he thought he needed to go into computer science and engineering to go into cyber. And it was only like three years into his four-year degree that he realized that that wasn't necessary. And so, I yeah, I take your point about it's kind of erecting barriers. I wonder aloud if that's is it bragging because there's more credibility attached to, you know, notches in the belt or certification? I don't know. I feel it feels like a lot of people are just constantly trying to prove that they have a right to be in the room.
1: Yeah, and I get that. It, females especially. And sometimes I find myself leading with my credentials. I'll have to say I have this and this and this mm. and this just to have people listen to me. Um, but I realized I actually stopped doing that. Um, you know, over the past year or so, because I didn't need, I didn't feel the need anymore to prove myself. I'm, I want to stand on my own merits. Certainly there are people who are Going to challenge, but you you bring data and facts. You don't lead with emotions. People resound with that a little bit better. If you lead with, well, I know everything. You have to listen to me. Uh, that's not going to win hearts and minds. You have to <laughs> right. bring the data. You have to show, th- you know, the reasons why you're arguing for a certain thing or against a certain thing, and you show them the data and the numbers and how you reach the conclusions. And people generally don't argue against facts. Like it's very interesting to me. Yeah. Um. But yeah, for sure, I can see a lot of people having that idea of i need to lead with my credentials and my education and my whatever uh, my work history and who i work for what my title is and again that's just human nature i think we have this uh, desire to control others and in order to do that we have to make ourselves bigger we puff ourselves up just Mm -hmm. to seem like we're more important very human nature thing Um, but once we get past that i think we have evolved as a community but we're not there yet
0: Fair point. And um, actually, that's also a a good um, segue there in terms of topic. So you actually came on my radar uh, late last year. I was interviewing Larry Whiteside Jr. And actually, I saw his reaction to a post of yours. So let's follow that thread. So you had posted about someone you knew who was unfortunate. They did not get a cybersecurity job because they lacked... A certain degree despite the fact that they had like 20 years of basically hacking experience and so i i really want to dig into this question because this has been bugging me a lot supposedly there is a skills shortage in cybersecurity, right they're always talking about we need this many people there are this many jobs there's not enough applicants i want i want to uh play devil's advocate here is is it a problem of our own devising right if you hear skill shortage and then you hear people who aren't getting jobs because they don't have a certain credential. I feel like we're erecting our own roadblocks.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're. I think you're absolutely right. We tell ourselves that cybersecurity is more difficult than it is. Um, I've made this point before where I don't think cybersecurity is as difficult as it used to be. It certainly was. Back when it first started, like mm-hmm. what, early '80s, '90s, when the internet was just being born, there weren't as many control frameworks, protocols, tools, open source software, you know, vendor products. None of that existed, so you had to kind of just wing it and scotch tape it. But nowadays, we have so many resources, so many tools, so such a huge community of contributors, and we'd be completely idiotic to not to use all that information. So. The cybersecurity that I see today is vastly different than it was 15 years ago when I started. Today, now we have a community that can help each other, and we've grown Mm -hmm. past the fact that we are just trying to walk. Right now, we are running, and people want to join us in this marathon that is cybersecurity, and we're putting up these roadblocks. We're saying, no, you don't have the right credentials. You You didn't graduate from the right cybersecurity program or whatever and you're not allowed to run with us. I find that completely disingenuous because the people who started it in, in my cohort I would say in the you know early 2000s when cybersecurity was really starting to get its legs. We got we were given a chance. Somebody gave us a chance. We didn't have any uh experience in cybersecurity. We just kind of knew technology right yeah you'd played
0: with computers and you had played with (laughs) computers
1: and that's that's what I'm telling you like people these days grew up with computers they have technology all their entire life and so they've been exposed to technology more than the people who and I'm 40 so people in my age I remember a time when there wasn't technology and I remember being bored you know like just sitting there because there weren't screens to keep me occupied um, but people these days, they grew up with this stuff and they grew up with technology and they know what good technology looks like, good information security looks like. They've just been around it. So they're starting the race far more ahead than where we started way back mm-hmm. in the day. I think they're probably a mile marker 10 in the, in the marathon. So I would say give these people a chance because they're smart. They're not any dumber than you. And just because they didn't have a CS degree from Harvard or whatever, like you're not going to let them in completely disingenuous, we have to start giving people chances because we need that next generation to follow us. We're going to retire, we're going to leave our jobs, and we're not training and mentoring the next generation. And that's where I see major problems happening in the future.
0: Yeah, that that is exactly what I wanted to get into. I th- thought that was a very interesting way to put it. The skill shortage always sounds like a present day problem, but I like that you frame it as like... <laughs> I think you told me, look, I just want to retire <laughs> and I need somebody to take my place. Um, it also strikes me that if you were to recruit younger talent, you also have the opportunity. I mean, I think maybe some people see it as an obstacle, but you have the opportunity to, to bring them up in the, the framework or the thinking or whatever that you want to shape them rather than trying to break habits that they brought from a different company or something like that.
1: Yeah, that's really well put. I mean, you know what good information security looks like, right? So, And and so do I. I've seen it done really well. Um, I spent 12 years at a great company called Vanguard where information security was done very, very well. It followed all the frameworks <laughs> and had all the certifications. And it was a, a very great learning place for me, a, a training ground for me. So I, I left that place and I brought with me the uh, knowledge of what good information security looks like and what maturity looks like. And to bring that to the rest of the organizations that I work with, the small and mid-sized companies, how can I now shape what we currently have, which is very immature, and bring it to the level of maturity that the business needs Mm -hmm. and not going overboard? Because yes, you can have too much security and uh, you don't want to be in that situation. You want to balance the needs of the business with security. So uh, teaching and training the people that I work with what good information security looks like. thats how. win that's how we have the common knowledge and shared across different industries and communities and different uh, roles and titles and people will start to uh, come together and fight cybercrime because security is everyone's responsibility it wouldn't be just centralized to an individual or to a team everyone takes care of security and that is how we beat cybercrime
0: well and i also think the awareness is just um exploded as a result of cybercrime right i have friends who have no connections to cybersecurity asking me by name about solar winds right <laughs> right like that's i mean it sounds i guess banal but it's kind of a big deal because that's basically quote unquote outsiders asking about supply chain risk right so i think that level of awareness is there i mean we had the the fed chair Jerome Powell cite cyber risk as a, a number one concern for the federal reserve bank, you know, as a risk to growth, I think that, it, you know, that awareness is, is growing. Um, cool. And then, so another thing I want to turn our attention to is you once wrote um, we've, we've always done it this way is one of the biggest problems in the cybersecurity industry, hoping you can expand there. I mean, as you said, Where we are today versus where we were is so different. It strikes me that if if the industry and the technology is constantly changing, I'm just curious as to why you think that might be a, a fallback line.
1: Yeah, happy to. So, if I mean, if you just take a look at any headline in the news, there's going to be another breach, another major breach that's bigger <laughs> than the one before. So we are clearly not winning the war on cybercrime. We still experience breaches. The biggest companies with the biggest security budgets are still losing money and still falling victims to cybercrime. So we're clearly and objectively losing the war. So I would say if we aren't winning currently with the way that we're doing things, maybe we should think critically about why we're doing certain things. And if we still need to do it that way. So one thing is, why are we hiring entry level positions and asking for five years of experience in a CISSP for an entry level position? Why are we doing it this way? I think we can do better. I think we can think critically. I think information security professionals are smart that we can think outside the box, but we haven't been doing that. Mm-hmm. So my entire challenge to the cybersecurity community is to really take a step outside of where you are currently and take a put a critical eye on why you think certain problems are happening and ask yourself if there's anything that we can do that's different. And I think if we try something that's a little bit different than what we're trying now, it's better than staying the course and continuing to lose this war because that's what we're doing now and it is well, the cyber criminals are uh, very happy with
0: that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also the definition of insanity, right? To continue oh, doing is. the same thing right. and expecting a different <laughs> result. Um, yeah, I've, that five years experience thing drives me nuts. I have a, a number of um, friends and former interns uh, here who have al- have been asking, like, how do I get this experience? And I, my advice to them, and I guess the recruiters can quote me on this, I tell them they just put that up to keep the crazy out. And I was like, you should apply anyway, because I mean, the worst they can do is say no. But if you get a chance at the interview and you demonstrate that you understand the business and you're intelligent, that little tick mark, that five years, two years, whatever uh, degree in, you know, explicit major here that all kind of falls to the wayside. I don't, I don't know why we put those roadblocks yeah. up.
1: Yeah. We need to start thinking critically about what we're putting in on job descriptions and what we're requesting from our hires, because I believe we have the resources. We have the ability to train people. People are smart enough and they're well-versed enough in technology and they have a comfort level that they can bring more than what you're asking for on paper. You don't need a college degree or five years experience. You have the equivalent in either upcoming training that you you can give these people, or they already have that level of comfort with technology that they don't start from zero. No one's starting from zero here. Mm-hmm. People are walking in, they already know how to use basic SaaS products and collaboration tools. They know how to type. Like, think about where right. we started. Right. Like, I, I remember people hunting and pecking with the fingers. My child is seven years old. He already knows how to hack his iPad. Like, I'm uh, telling you, these kids these days, they know what they're doing with technology. There's plenty of opportunities for these folks. We just have to give them a chance
0: oh for sure i mean um yeah i remember having to take like use software to learn how to type and uh yeah that's yeah, and that also and
1: racing game yeah, yeah and and
0: people and people would put um Expertise in Microsoft Office. And it's like, you can't even put that on a resume now because that's just like, if you don't know how to use Office, exactly.
1: then you haven't yes. gotten to college. I, I constantly see people's resumes leading with Microsoft Office. That's like the first <laughs> thing. And I'm just like, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, You can tell they're, uh, they've gotten some bad advice there. But yeah, for sure, there's a baseline that's always a little higher than it used to be. Back in my day, it was, you know, if you knew HTML, I think you were like mm-hmm. a computer programmer. Nowadays, it's like, that's not even a real programming language. Um, but it's it's those things where we're constantly evolving and we have to start recognizing that the people who are gatekeepers within our community refuse to see that the people entering now or trying to enter already have that built-in comfort level with technology that we had to learn because we did not grow up with technology. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up with computers. I only started using computers in high school. So think about all the kids these days. They've started when they were babies. Uh, so give them the chances. Notice that you can train them and you can mentor them. Show them what good information security looks like because you're going to retire. You will die. Do you want people coming in after you having no idea what good information security looks like? I hope you do not. So it is your responsibility to raise up the next generation. Stop being a gatekeeper. Let people in.
0: Yeah, and I also think about the personality. You know, something that comes to mind is uh, Mike Convertino, who's at Resilience Insurance now. He was former CISO at Twitter, but he started in the military. And actually, if we go farther back than either you or I, he started with phone freaking. So he described it as you have to have a love of the challenge. It's a chess match every day. You come into work. The bad actors are coming at you with different stratagems, different tactics, and if you're not kind of up to that level of of the game, you know you're you sort of bang your head against the wall so can you speak to that in terms of that that challenge that personality I feel like that's a necessary component to.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's that little thing inside a great cybersecurity professional to always pull at that thread and to like scratch that itch and to see Mm -hmm. how the puzzle all fits together. And that is um, really the difference between someone who just wants a job in cybersecurity and someone who wants a career in cybersecurity. Because the people who want careers, they're bored after a few months. You know, they're like, I'm Mm -hmm. done with this. I want to move on to another thing. I remember cybersecurity covers so many vast domains. There's so many things to do that you can literally spend an entire career and not hit on every single one of these things. And you can't be an expert in every one of these things, but you will find things that you're uh, more gravitating towards, right? You're like, oh, I love application security, which is my favorite domain, by the way, application Mm -hmm. security. And then you can try all these other things. Like you're going to hit on the boring ones like GRC, no offense to GRC people, (laughs) but you're going to find different things to pull at and to pick at because that's who you are as a person. Like you just need to figure this out and you have this thirst to satisfy this curiosity. Like you have to do it. And I find that the best security professionals have that itch and that ability to just keep learning and have that challenge and find it. And and yeah.
0: Yeah. Nurture it. Um, Cool. And so I want to, End uh, here with a last question about the work that you've been doing with Philly Tech Sisters, the the nonprofits, the mentorship. If you could talk to us about, I mean, that seems very much like putting into practice the idea of, of bringing up the next generation. So, just want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about that organization.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, f- shout out to Philly, Texas, to really awesome organization. I'm just a volunteer there. I don't do any leadership or anything like that. But uh, we build up to people of color, women of color in the Philadelphia area and beyond, where we try to train them up with technical skills, just to get their interests peaked. where they now get, know the basics of coding, CSS, HTML, JavaScript, and they move on from there. So that's Literally how I got started with computers where I realized, hey, I can make a web page great, how do I do that? and then from there it just snowballed into all these other things and so that's really what we're trying to do is trying to engage a community that no- normally doesn't really have that level of access to be like you can create a web page mm-hmm. and this is how you do it and really simplifying it so and making it um, you know less obtrusive or you know less difficult to get in and break in so really lowering those gates but I am also starting uh, my own nonprofit called cybersecurity gatebreakers. And uh, the idea is to now convince hiring managers and companies that it's okay to hire interns and entry-level people. And here's the reasons and benefits why you should do that. And here's how you can do that risk-free. And here's some other companies that have done this. And and um, I'm going to create a list of companies that have pledged to hire entry-level folks and interns. And uh, that will be released soon. But yeah, my own nonprofit.
0: Oh, that I'm is learning. awesome. Yeah. yeah. C- congratulations. Thank you. That's good. And I think also you bring up the point that it's also not just access, but they have to be able to see people who look like them have cybersecurity careers or, I mean, technology careers, uh, you know, at large.
1: Yeah, uh, representation matters. And that's what's interesting to me is, uh, you know, I I was kind of heads down in doing my own security practice. Like I, mm-hmm. I didn't really notice anything going around me until recently where I finally lifted my head and I, I just looked around and I, I saw the elitism. I saw the gatekeeping and I realized like, what's going on here? Cause I, I hadn't been really involved in uh, you know, Twitter or, or LinkedIn or anything like that. I was just more doing my own thing. And I think a lot of people do that. And then when I realized I picked up my head and I realized all these problems, uh, I started becoming really disturbed by it. Right. And so that's why I started with this, the posting and the podcast. And a lot of that just snowballed into where we are today, where I'm like, hey, I might as well just keep talking about this because I think a lot of other people feel the same way. And I think the more people who talk about it, we're going to shift that Overton window, that conversation, and start focusing on the right things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I thank you for for talking about it. And I thank you for the time today. I know you're very busy. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, George.
0: Absolutely. All right, take care. And that's it for First Watch today. A big thanks to our special guest, Naomi Buckwalter. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber. It's produced by Chloe LeClaire with help from Phil Totora. Edited by Kai Krogetti with original music by Mattia Cefaletti. Subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay safe, stay strong.